Higher. Okay. All right. So what we'll what we're going to do today is go ahead and we'll pray for the lesson, but we'll go ahead. Normally, we have church prayer, you know, on the other side, but due to our numbers this day, we'll, why don't we just do it all in one here? So any, uh, uh, any particular uh, people, situations and all that we want to lift up? And I'll take a note. Anybody? We got a lot of people that are with sick with COVID, and we're, you know, I saw Rodney here today, so uh, we uh, are making some progress in some areas. Charlie's still sick, but improving. I know Brenda's ill. Any others? Any others? Hey, Carol. And we uh, yesterday was the memorial service for Gary Inman, which is who was uh, Millie's husband that passed away of COVID. Okay. Well, let me just go ahead and pray uh, for these, and then I'll open our uh, our lesson. Lord God, we you know we uh, we love to seek your face, Father, and we are thankful that you listen and are there for us. And we lift, uh, you know, these concerns that are on our char- uh, on our hearts. We have several people sick in the hospital and uh, outside of the hospital and what have you. And we uh, want to ask your uh, healing care and provision over all these. Uh, we would lift up Charlie. And, uh, and thank you, Lord, for the progress that he's made this week. We're, we're really... Uh, blessed by that. Father, we thank you that Rodney's back in church and and doing well, but we pray for Brenda, who we hear is improving, but has had a slower course. And uh, we just uh, ask you to watch over and keep her, Lord. And, and for Nathan, uh, also, who's still feverish, Lord, still symptomatic, and we pray that we would see some signs of improvement, Lord, really soon with him. And also his roommate, uh, Matthew. And Lord, I would lift up... Uh, I would lift up Millie uh, Inman uh, to you, Lord, as she's uh, just buried her husband uh, yesterday. And we just pray that uh, she would find her peace and comfort in you alone and, and that this church body would be uh, a source for her uh, to uh, just gain uh, strength. And I would lift up Carrie Potts, Father, and Stephen as well. But Carrie, uh, thank you, Lord, that her hip is improving so much that she's been released from rehab. But, Father, we pray uh, that the stent that had been working, Lord, and has moved would be uh, maneuverable back to reposition and so that her bowels would work uh, as they should. Um, we thank you uh, for the day. We thank you for the, uh, for the teaching that's coming from Kelly, and we ask that you would bless that and that you would bless our, our Sunday school, Lord, and that we would just represent you well, that we would learn things about you and that uh, we would... Apply things uh, from your word, Lord. We ask you to bless this time in Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay.
All right. Another COVID recuperator is returning. Recuperators. All right. Today, I'm filling in for Jim. He is, uh, he and Barbara gone to Washington, and they're taking care of the a funeral and all the arrangements with his brother who passed away a week, about a week and a half ago. So they're on our prayers too. Uh, I should have lifted them up, but uh, that they would get all they need to do accomplished and that uh, travels would be safe for them to and from and they would return to us. And hopefully he'll be here next week to pick up where he was. Uh, today, so I have one day, uh, I thought I'd make things interesting. Uh, to start off, uh, today's lesson. How about a question? Uh, what is the least popular book of the Bible? And let me give you the criteria. Let me give you the criteria. It's, this is according to, uh, and not anything that I'm teaching, this is according to data obtained from BibleGateway.com, which is a, an open access um, Bible source for all things Scripture, and they have most uh, all the uh, different translations on it. And they determined this by their data that showed uh, essentially which book, book of the Bible was the least read, the least read. And they, and they equated that to be the least popular. Now, I'll give you some guesses, and I'll give you some hints if you'd like. So how do you want to start? Letter go. Books. Uh, it is the Old Testament. I'm doing this in one day, Rob. <laughs> Uh, not Habakkuk, no. Uh, it is Old Testament. I haven't heard it yet. Uh, and it's one of the minor prophets. And it's only one. There you go. Obadiah. And it's written to the nation of Edom. Obadiah. And most people have never read it. Why do you think this book is so unpopular? It's so unpopular, it doesn't even make your list of unpopular. So that's bad, right? We don't like that. Yeah. It's not uplifting? <laughs> okay, we're done. <laughs> well, I mean, like, is it irrelevant or, you know, out of date or what? You know, basically, you know, in, in reality, there's a great theme. There's more than one great theme. There's several great axioms and principles and truths of God that are there. And uh, it surrounds uh, the message that he is giving, but there's great application, not just in the book, but personally. Ouch, because, uh, I, you know, it's been getting me, especially the last 24 hours. Um, so in order to get as much as I can, I'm going to spend a little bit of time, maybe more so on the intro, so that we can just go through, not cherry pick, we're going to read hopefully the whole uh, book, but focus on those verses that really stand out more, okay? But f I, I think if I spend a, a little time in the introduction, we can get a better general idea of what we're, what we're dealing with here. Obadiah, there is a theme, a major theme that runs through it. There is an opening great theme uh, that's truly of concern to God. This is something that's very important to God. And uh, let me say this. Some of the most severe words of warning in the Bible are not specifically directed to lost persons per se, okay? But they focus on a specific attitude. 
an attitude, a specific, ter, a specific I'm not going to say character trait, a character flaw, all right, and a state of one's being. And the fact is that Obadiah addresses Edom, who perfectly illustrates God's point in all of this. Obadiah is, is going to point us to a problem that many people have, and it's called pride, proud, the proud, the self-righteous. This is the one that makes me say, ouch, arrogance, and vengeful, vengeful, wanting to get revenge. All of those things, they're here in this book. And I'd say before we proceed into the book, I'm going to stop for a minute and let's look at this problem a little deeper just as it, as it is in, in some other scriptures, okay? So a great place to start is uh, Proverbs uh, 6, verses 16 to 19. Now, I've gone ahead and, and uh, made a Word document, so I'm not fumbling around in my scripture, in my Bible. Here's Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to Him. First one, haughty eyes. He goes on a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies. And one who spreads strife among brothers. But the first is haughty eyes. Now, what, how do we get pride out of haughty eyes? Any ideas? You know, I used to watch. Anybody? Yeah, we're going to get, we'll see that brought out too in illustration. Uh, you know, I used to watch cartoons when I was a kid, uh, you know, and everybody was like Popeye the Sailor Man and uh, Deputy Dog and all this, and they were just kind of simple little characters, you know. And if you flip on tunes these days, I've noticed a strange phenomenon there's this appearance of total self-sufficiency and uh, abilities beyond, you know, mere mortals and a look and expression of I can do anything kind of stuff. And, it's, and it strikes me as haughty. And, you know, that's just one place where I've seen that kind of stuff. But you'll, you see that, I'll, I see that frequently. Anybody else seen that around, an attitude? Uh-huh. Me first kind of stuff. So T-shirts, bumper stickers, signs that we see, advertisements for sure, television, you know, commercials, all of that. But it seems like we've drifted away from, away from a, you know, white picket fence kind of simple, you know, virtuous kind of a deal. I mean, I'm kind of older in the classroom, maybe not uh, the, you know, the oldest or anything of that nature, but I've seen the change. And, I, and I'll tell you, I don't see, talking to my sons, I don't, they don't really see that as well. And it's just one of those things. They, they don't have that memory to go back to. Uh, but I do, and I see it, and, it's, and it seems like it's occurred rapidly to me. Anyway, it's pride. Um, Luke chapter, Luke, yeah, Luke 18 is going to deal with, Jesus is dealing with prayer praying, okay, and especially uh, 
in the first part of it. But in, in uh, verse 9, I started to read you the scripture. Uh, in verse 9 through 14, he wants to make a point, and it's, perf- it's very applicable to uh, this pride issue. And uh, there's a great axiom in it that's going to carry out that, that Edom is a, is a perfect illustration of, okay? So let me read this to you. And listen, in verse 9, listen for the three characteristics of pride, okay? And, all, and he, speaking of Jesus, also told this parable to some, listen, people who trusted themselves that they were righteous, that's two, and three, viewed others with contempt. So self-sufficient, self-righteous, and then self-appointed critics, all right? And then... And then he goes on. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, like in the back, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, not a sinner, the sinner, the sinning one. Uh, I tell you, this, this is Jesus, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For listen, here's the axiom, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Who does that apply to? Everyone. You know, everyone. Uh, Wow. So uh, we have those three characteristics. Now, God hates these things. And and it's just uh, this this attitude that Edom is going to demonstrate for us. And we're going to see what God does to deal with them. And this is the principle that's being put forth in the book of Obadiah. And now, you know, of note, Obadiah, you know, it occurs, it's in the, it's in the uh, Minor Prophets, and it's uh, right before Jonah, which is a little ironic because, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I think reading Obadiah, understanding Obadiah helps us to, uh, it helps to explain or help us to understand God's dealings with Jonah in the very next book. I mean, we all know Jonah, but we don't really pay attention to Obadiah. So... I thought that's interesting. What was Jonah's attitude toward Nineveh? He didn't want to go, right? Let them all die. Let them die. It's not that. It's not like oh, God's not going to save them. No, it's like God probably is going to save them, and I don't really care that that they get saved. You know, that kind of an attitude. So I think it's going to be helpful now to just kind of discuss uh, the Book of Obadiah's historical content, and then let, let's also look at some of the history surrounding Edom proper, okay, before we get into the, the Scripture itself. Now, at the, uh, the outset of the book, Obadiah, we discover that we're dealing with a family feud, okay? And this isn't the Hatfields and the McCoys. This is more on the magnitude of Israel and everybody else that surrounds them in the Middle East, the Arabs, the Persians, you know, the... Uh, all those that surround the Palestinians. Uh, this is this is extreme hatred. Okay, who is Edom? I've already 
I haven't said yet, have I? Who is Edom? That is, who, who are the Edomites? Who are these people? Okay, I'm going to read Genesis 36, 8 and Deuteronomy 23, 7. They'll tell us. It says, Genesis 36, 8, and Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. We'll talk about that. Esau is Edom. Esau is Esau is the patriarch of an entire nation that follows. Deuteronomy, thou shalt not abhor an Edomite. Why? For he is thy brother. For thou, not shalt, thou shalt not abhor, abhor an Egyptian because thou wast a sojourner in his land. But an Edomite is your brother. This is to Israel. Okay, so that would be their brother. That's Deuteronomy 23.7. Okay. So we all know the story of Jacob and Esau. And I say Jacob and Esau. Who was the older? Esau. I should say Esau and Jacob, right? But that's kind of been twisted around. Um, interestingly, Esau is the older twin brother of Jacob. And through some shenanigans, Jacob and, and their mother, Rebecca, were able to usurp the rights of first uh, sonship, first, firstborn son, from Esau. Okay, do you remember when we were studying Thessalonians and I said, we came across the word guile and I said how it was related to uh, Jacob? And uh, the word, is the, we looked at the, the, uh, the Greek word, dolos, but it's, it's, it's a deceitful, uh, uh, mishandling and clever but untrustworthy kind of a characteristic, guile. And it's, and it's a synonym for Jacob. Um, so was Esau an innocent party in this whole deal? Probably not. What? No, not really at all. He is a, he's a man, if you want to think of his characteristics, I'd say fleshy, uh, self-centered, non-spiritual, earthy. He had big he had appetites. You know, there are two phases of the trickery of Jacob over Esau. One was uh, he caught him when he'd been out I don't know, hunting or what have you, and, and, he, uh, and Esau was just hungry. I mean, the only thing he could think of was feeding his self, feeding his gut. And, uh, and Jacob made him a pot of stew. And, and, and wanted the birthright in exchange for the stew. Without even thinking, Esau, you know, relinquishes it. It means nothing to him. He's not spiritual. He doesn't care. He's not seeking after God. That's Esau. Um, and then what happened? What's, what's the other big deal? Uh, they had to get the blessing from, from Daddy, uh, from Isaac, right? So how do they do that? And, and Rebecca helped out with this one, didn't she? And so as uh, Isaac, his, he's like, legally blind at this point, and I think he's getting close to his deathbed, and Jacob sneaks in, and what do they do? They put a skin over his arm, lay him there, daddy fills that, and thinks he's got Esau, who's like a burly guy, you know, uh, and he gets the blessing. And so Isaac says he can't retract it after that, but, you know, that's, that's it, and then Esau's furious at that point. Jacob ultimately, you know, his, his mother scoots him out, and, uh, and then he's going on his way, but he's always looking over his shoulder because his brother, he figures, is going to kill him, right? What ultimately happened between Jacob and Esau? They reconciled. Very good. So Genesis 33, 1 to 4. This is at the end of it when they're coming together and Jacob's kind of sending in groups, you know, and they're all big families at this point. Clan, let's call them a clan. And uh, here's what it says. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau 
was coming, and with him 400 men. Now, these are his people, his kinsfolk at this point. And he divided the children, that is, Jacob did, unto Leah, unto Rachel, and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. That was his youngest son. And he himself, <clears throat> and he himself passed over before them and bowed himself. So he went in front. I thought he was going to send them ahead, but he went in front, bowed himself uh, to the ground seven times and he, until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And then they parted ways. Unfortunately, the seed did not take hold of that. It, 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 the problem is they never really uh, resolved the problem. And uh, it seems that the, anima the animosity... Uh, instead of going away, became a seed of like an unforgiveness, an unforgiven resentment, all right? And uh, it was allowed to grow and fester and multiply over generations until we get to this Edom here that we're going to see in Obadiah. And it's become now that, that all that bitterness, that, that uh, hatred and arrogance and, and even pride, we'll see, uh, has become the focus of an entire nation. And that's what Edom is. That focus is pride. And it's self-righteousness and revenge, heavy on revenge, arrogance, and, and just a host of other toxins that that brings along with it. And they're all directed at who? Israel, Jacob's descendants, Jacob's descendants, Israel, which just happens to be God's chosen people. Okay, what does God think of Israel? Man, Israel gets in trouble constantly. But what is God's kind of pet name for them? the apple of his eye. Zechariah, I'll just read, this is just one place. Zechariah 2.8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That was from the messenger, the apple of God's eye. So, you know, God punishes Israel left and right in the Old Testament and even today. But we need to understand they are his chosen people. He takes care of business. He may use somebody to take care of business, but, you know, there's, there's certain limits he puts on everything, you know? Okay. So this is the family feud that we're looking at. Now, let's look at Edom proper. Um, you probably say it, it's, it's probably present-day Jordan that we're looking at, this, this, this land that would have been called Edom. It was, a, it was at the south and the east of the Dead Sea. And it's about 100 miles long. It's a strip of land about 100 miles long and about 20 to 30 miles wide. It is a mountainous region. In fact, I'm going to circulate. This is just a little stock picture I got off the Internet. Why don't you all get a look at that and then let me know. I'll, I'll pass it down. This is a place in Edom called Petra. Magnificent. Still there. Uh, it's, a, it's a city uh, hewn in, in, in rock, in stone. And uh, it's a fortress. This is, this is how they lived, okay? Now, uh, some of the areas in terms associated with Edom are, uh, you might see Idumea, Idumea, uh, or, or, and that's the same as the Negev. You may pass it back. That's the same as the Negev, or you might see uh, uh, Basra. Basra is a good one uh, that's, uh, uh, that we'll actually look at again uh, later. And... Uh, Mount Seir is synonymous with Edom. Um, Petra, 
which is the picture also known as Selah, and Teman. We may have heard that one before. And, uh, and then Ezion Geber, which is a seaport at the Aqaba Gulf, which is the land, there's a little, the uh, Gulf of Aqaba comes in just below where the, the border, it, right at the border of, of Edom there, and it's a seaport. So it's a very, it would be a place of, of commerce. Okay, the Edomites, what about them as a people? Well, they were a contrary, ornery, unlikable, vengeful, and prideful nation. These guys were marauders and skirmishers. They liked to come down from their mountain hideaways. They were troglodytes, by the way. They stayed in, these, in, the, in the caves and, <laughs> and, and in the sides of the mountain and all this. And uh, they would come down, and they'd have short little skirmishes and try to mess up you know, Jewish passers-by. They, would, they, had, they had a product that they sold, a couple of good products, so they had a source of wealth, and, but they made it real wealth because they would uh, gouge everybody. They were unfair in business and just totally scoundrels, okay? That's them. Now, although the book is directed at Edom, I need to also point out that God is going to have his spotlight on Jerusalem, on Judah, on Israel, on the Jews, Okay? So it's at Edom, but the spotlight is ultimately on Israel. Now, as regarding dating the book, it's, it's difficult because uh, Obadiah is one of 12 Obadiahs in Scripture, and he chose not to give any of his pedigree. I mean, I think he felt like his message was more important than who he was. So we really don't know who he was, but it speaks of an invasion of Jerusalem. Okay, And so that gives us at least four possibilities there. And some of them are not worthy to considerate. consider. Uh, the one that most scholars take is the older one, which is like in the 840s B.C., and that was from Philistine and the uh, Arab invasion. It was a partial uh, attack on Israel. But the one that fits the best with the surrounding scripture that I found, and so I'm going to present as, is the uh, Babylonian invasion, which would put, what would put the date about 605 to 586 B.C. on the book. Okay, and it just fits well with what I read and the way I interpret it. I could be wrong, okay, but we don't know. Regarding this human author, as I said, uh, he doesn't really identify himself. There's, uh, there are 12 Obadiahs. His name, though, means worshiper of God. Tom? Who? No, no. No, what do we, when we open, you'll see it just goes, this Obadiah, this is the word of God, basically. You know, it's, this, the book is all God. Obadiah is just, you know, putting it down. In fact, you know, we see there's a big section of Jeremiah 49 at the very beginning that's just kind of transliterated over. Um, so, uh, the book has a point to make in addition to the arrogance factor, the proudness, the vengeance, and all that. It has a very important point to make. It's a significant truth, and we, sh we should listen to it. I tell you, the nations of the world should, should listen to it. The point that he puts forth is that when any people or nation place themselves in opposition to God's people, which is what Edom does, they can expect judgment. They can expect judgment. And that's rather than redemption. That doesn't sound like a very neat message, but that how, is how God deals 
in, in relationship to his, his chosen people. Uh, the book lends itself well to being divided. Uh, verses 1 through 9 I've got as prediction, predictive. Uh, they're predicting the coming humiliation and destruction of Edom because of their arrogance. Uh, in other words, it's what will happen. That's what the first nine verses are. Verses 10 to 14 are uh, Edom's denunciation from God. In other words, God's rebuking of Edom is in those verses, and in it he gives his reasons why he's going to punish Edom. So it's coming judgment. In other words, it's what will happen. And then the last uh, verses, 15 to 21, it's only 21 verses long, is the consummation of Edom's ultimate destruction. And, and in contrast to that, the future redemption of the object of their hatred, who is Israel. Okay, so we're going to see some prophecy regarding future Israel as well. And so this is how, how it will happen. So that was the introduction. I think we can spend some time now in the book. Uh, verses 1 through 9, and I'm going to divide that into two readings. One through nine. This is the vision of Obadiah. Okay, Obadiah is done. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Against who? Edom. Okay, no, against Edom. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, remember Petra, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like an eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So we see he's talking to them, and he's identifying them in an objective way. So there's no doubt of what people he's talking to. You know, the, the dwelling places in the rocks, that's, that's all this mountainous area that they live. Petra is a good example of that. Uh, they're up high. They, uh, what he's sending is a nation of invaders are going to take care of them. And they actually, that occurs in a couple of phases. Uh, the Nabataeans, uh, uh, around the four or 500 B.C. time, did some damage to them, and they, they actually moved over kind of into Idumea, which is right next to the Edom proper for a bit. And then ultimately, Judas Maccabeus in 185 B.C. does away with them, okay? And then they have to, they're, they're, they're scattered and they assimilate into people. Can anybody think of, a, of an Edomite of great importance that we hear about in Jesus' time? Who? Amal okay. Well, he, wasn't even, he was one, right. But in Jesus' time, well, who, was, who, was a, who wanted all the babies killed? Herod the Great, right? He was an Edomite, but he had no country at that time. He'd assimilated, assimilated into Israel at that time. I think Samaria was on there. Uh, but they are gone. You know, there are no, there are no Edomites. You can't, nobody traces their history back to Edom. Um, where am I? Clefts of the Rock. Okay, what about this? Uh, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. What does that tell us about arrogance? 
What, Carol? It does. It starts here and it covers this. It, you know, it's like a veil, and you get, you're diluted. And we're going to see that. The self-sufficiency can give you the false sense of safety. They said, who will bring me down? They felt they're up in the, they're up here. Not only was it mountainous, but there was like a, you know, a strict, uh, what do you call that entrance between mountains uh, to get through? It was only, you know, a few feet. So the uh, masses of people couldn't come attacking at once regularly. And so they, they had this sense of, hey, I don't, there's a lot of, yeah, there's lots of dangerous people out there, but we're safe where we are. Who else had that attitude? Nothing could get him except some Persians that came in under a, under a wall, right? And uh, Belshazzar, remember, they, had, they, were having a, they were so confident. They were just drinking and drunk and all that, and they were just sitting ducks. When, and the handwriting on the wall, that's that great chapter. So that's what arrogance, and he was, I would say he was pretty arrogant. And so we see that characteristic uh, attaches itself to people or the other way around, who are then deluded by it. Let's keep going. Uh, verse 5 through 9 says, If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave you some gleanings? Oh, Esau, oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not in that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. So we have, what's the deal comparing robbers here to what God's going to do? Robbers and thieves. Would they not just take what they need and leave in contrast to what God's going to do to you? The completeness of the destruction that's coming? Well, you know, it's like, no, they're not going to, I mean, that's going to be way worse than, than what man would do, right? And... Uh, the hidden treasures will be searched out. They had, they had treasure, and they had them up in their, in their dwelling places in the mountains. And they ultimately, they were searched out. What about their allies, their so-called allies? What does it say? Edom, can, can they trust in their allies in time of need? No. There's a betrayal here that's depicted. Um, send you forth to the border. That is to chase you out, out to the perimeter. Uh, the men at peace you, with you, they'll deceive you, they'll overpower you. This, this, uh, y'all see the verse here, they who eat your bread? That's an interesting verse because it's not translated correctly. Uh, it, it's more like your bread, I have to read this, your bread they have laid as a festering wound under you. There's an idea that goes deeper than them just eating your bread. Okay, So if I said that bread uh, could be the literal bread, or if bread is a metaphor, for instance, for the, whatever the chief source of wealth is for a nation. Can you, would you all buy that? 
So like, so the bread of Pittsburgh, we could say is steel, or at least used to be steel, right? So that's the sense in which this word is being used. So the, their bread, whatever they have uh, is their bread, their chief source, is being laid as a festering wound under them. Um, so there were some archaeological digs. At, at, remember I mentioned Ezion Geber, that, that seaport uh, at, the, at the southernmost end of the country. They found, they did some uh, digging and they found evidence of uh, pretty much industrial operations for smelting and refining. The elements that are high there, which are copper and iron, copper and iron, those were the, that was the bread of uh, Edom. Copper and iron. So these are in, these are things that could be used to make other things. And they sold them. People came and bought it, and they gouged people and sold them at exorbitant price. And those people took them and made implements of war out of them, like swords and shields and spears. And that's what they used to come back and attack them with. So that's how that phrase is really, or what it's really referring to. When they eat your bread, they're going to basically they're eating your lunch with what you sold them. So. You know, this is just like a backfire kind of a thing. Uh, and there's no understanding in him. In other words, uh, Edom doesn't even know what hit him. Uh, and he destroys the wise men. Now, the area that was known for wise men and mighty men was actually Teman, and he names Teman that city by name. Who do we know that came from Teman? You can't answer, Jeff. <laughs> Anybody we know that came from Teman that gave comforting words to somebody who was in suffering and Eliphaz, yes, Eliphaz, uh, came to Job in suffering. He was from, he's, he's named as a Temanite. Uh, so that's a famous one there. Uh, okay, anything else? What is, uh, we're going to see this term cut off in 9 and cut off in the next verse. Let me read it in 10. Because of violence to your brother Jacob. Now, you know, all the, the mysteries removed. We take it down to the people, the nations to the people. Your brother Jacob, so this identifies Jacob and identifies the one you're talking to. His brother has to be Esau, okay? You will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. What does that term cut off mean to you? Well, right. You know, uh, let's see if I even wrote this one down. I did not. Uh, Daniel, let me read you Daniel. That's the first time I saw this and it registered with me was in Daniel uh, 9.26. It's in the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Okay. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Cut off. What did it mean for Jesus? Death. And, and that's what God means. Here, ultimately, it's it's destruction. Um, oh, I'm going to read. Here's here's the Job uh, talking about Eliphaz. Now, when Job's three friends, Job two eleven, when Job's three friends heard about all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one of them from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shumite, and Zophar the Naamathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. Okay. And then in verse 10 it says, you will be covered with shame. And that seems to be in contrast to uh, the arrogance of your heart. It's like, the, it's like the antidote for it. Let's keep going. Verse 11, 
on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth. Whose wealth? On the day that, yes, that strangers carried off his wealth, that's Israel, and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots wealth for, Judo, for Jerusalem. You too were as one of them. You were just as much a part of it. And, this, and my picture is the Babylonian invasion here. That's what I'm seeing. Uh, do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. This is when they were defeated. You know, they were, they were ransacked three times, but ultimately in 586, it was done. And uh, I think Daniel went over in 605. And continuing Obadiah, Obadiah, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. Looks like they were blocking their escape route and killing them or taking them prisoner and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. You think God cares about Israel? And uh, these are all denunciations toward Edom, all rebukes. These are all reasons why they're going to be destroyed. Okay? You know what? Uh, Psalm, 30, Psalm 137 I don't normally go there when I'm looking for peace and solace and all that. <laughs> it's what is called an imprecatory psalm. And imprecatory basically means uh, you want God to curse somebody who's wronged you. And uh, in and in Jerusalem, excuse me, and in Babylon, the captive uh, Israelites we're writing this, and this is the psalm that was on their hearts. Let me read it to you. Psalm 137. Picture the, the, uh, uh, all the uh, Jews that had been uprooted, uh, all their stuff destroyed, you know, all their belongings strewn, and you know, family members not even back with each other, and just the total de devastation of such an event of being, of being ripped out. Of course, they were warned, but all of that. This is what they said. By the rivers of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors jubilation singing. Sing for us one of the songs of Zion. So they're mocking them. Tell us how great you were, you know, now that you're our captives. Remember, this is verse 7, Remember, Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, those who said, lay it bare, lay it bare to its foundation. So they are standing, they're like onlookers in a crowd, you know, uh, fans who are ed, egging on Babylon to beat, to destroy, you know, to humiliate, to kill, all these things to, to the Israelites. And, and then they're pretty bad guys. So I told you, uh, this is, you know, we see then that, that there's violence. You know, their attitude became violent at points. They were blocking uh, escaping refugees. They were killing and slaughter and uh, just, you know, horrible things. Uh, I told you they were noted for their skirmish attacks. They would come down, attack, and then run back up in the hills. Um, what is it to stand aloof for aloofness? Okay, on the day that you stood aloof, to stand aloof, I looked it up, is to separate by distance, either physically, and then there's another sense, mentally or emotionally, to disconnect. Any feelings, 
you know, heartless, merciless. And that's, that's what they're doing. They're look, and from Petra, they would be looking down their noses, as someone says, onto uh, what was going on against uh, Jerusalem and Judah. So that feeling of superiority. Uh, okay, let's do the last section. Verses uh, 15 to 21. I'll just read the whole thing. For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Here's an axiom of God. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. That's kind of like Galatians 6, 7. Do not mock God. He's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And so that's kind of parallel. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and, and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But here's the contrast for God's people, Israel. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. These are the Jews. And it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. They're going to get them back. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble. They will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. That has happened. That part's happened. The part with Israel being blessed has not yet happened completely. Uh, it says, and then this goes on, it just lays out the parameters of the Davidic kingdom here. Uh, then those of the Negev will possess uh, the mountain of Esau. That means the Israelites. The Israelites are going to possess Shephelah, the Philistine plain, and possess the territory, territory of Ephraim, the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead and all the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel. Who are, among the Can- who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Zarephath will possess the cities of Negev. This, they're retaking what God originally has given to them. They're claiming uh, their, uh, their rights to that land. This will happen in the future kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom. That's when the deliverers, who will be judges, essentially will ascend Mount Zion, that's in Jerusalem, to judge the mountain of Esau and that attitude. Uh, and the kingdom will be God's. Uh, I wanted to touch one thing on here, and we'll be done. Uh, there's a there's a phrase, phraseology in here. Because you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow, and become as if they had never existed. What a, y'all get any picture out of that? Drink. Would you say, Linnell? Well, yes. Very much so. They have in here, as, as, as the topic is this arrogance, they have, it's, this is like a, uh, a gloating, an attitude of gloating. And they're sitting on somebody else's possession and drinking wine. But if there's another idea that goes with it, I think and it's, it's about getting away with sin. Yeah, we're getting away with it. We're drinking, basically, it's like playing. If you had poison and you just took it in your mouth and held it there just to impress somebody and then spit it out. Kind of a thing, you know, just kind of showing off, gloating, and playing with something very dangerous. And God says, yeah, drink. He says they will drink and swallow, and swallow. In other words, the consequences of what they've done will, be, will come down on them. Now, God is specific against Edom uh, in this rebuke that this book is. But it's not in prejudice. What he's saying is, because all nations, this is, I mean, this, was, this is what awaits all nations that, that reject God, all nations that, uh, you know, are uh, uh, 
cruel to his people Israel or think that they're done or what have you. And because uh, he's still in authority and he still judges according to his standards. So um, I have some other, but that's the, that's the main of it and we're, we're over. So hope you enjoyed uh, studying Obadiah. It was pretty unpopular. <laughs> Jeff, will you close us in prayer?